Covenant Life Fellowship. And for more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. A lot of new faces around here these days. And so for those of you who uh, may not know me, my name is Luis Castellanos. Uh, in the fall of this year, I will have been a member at CLF for 10 years, which is seems like a long time. So uh, I love this church. And uh, nobody paid me to say that. I, <clears throat> I sincerely just love this church. And so it is a joy to... Uh, be with you this morning. It is a joy to uh, have the responsibility to share God's word with you this morning. So uh, if you have your Bibles, go with me to the book of Timothy. We're going to be in chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. And um, we are wrapping up our study through this letter, which is a letter that Paul wrote to faithful pastor Timothy. And Paul wrote this letter to Timothy to show him what church was supposed to be like. Paul wanted Timothy to uh, know what the priorities for healthy local church life and ministry were. And so as we near uh, the end of this letter, Paul has been addressing different groups of people in the church. Paul has just finished talking about how to care for widows and people in need and how we are to care for our pastors. And in our text today, Paul turns his attention to two other groups of people, slaves and false teachers. Now, as we look at our text, you may be tempted to think, well, this passage has absolutely nothing to say to me. Because we don't have anyone in this church that fits into those categories. And so, although I may be here physically, I am checking out. And so if that thought just crossed your mind, I would encourage you to fight that urge and to sit up and see what the Lord might have to say to you this morning. As we dive into this text, we will find profound truth that is applicable for every Christian in this realm. And my big idea is simple. You can find that at the top of your bulletin. And I actually made it a little smaller, so it was a little easier. But here's my big idea. God cares about your life. He cares about your vocation, and he cares about your doctrine. So God cares about your life. He cares about your vocation, and he cares about your doctrine. So let's uh, let's read our text. We'll pray and we'll dive in. If you can stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is the word of the living God. First Timothy chapter six verses one through ten. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God in the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. 
If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has a, an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's pray. Well, God, we uh, come before you this morning and we ask you uh, that you would uh, be the one who leads us. May your spirit lead us and guide us into all truth. May your spirit, as we look at this text, may your spirit help us to see Jesus. May your spirit um, do his work and convict, encourage, reprove, correct, build up, Lord. Help us to see wonderful things in your word, God. And uh, I pray that you would be glorified, that you would draw people to yourself, the gospel would go forth, God, and that people would be edified. In Jesus' name, amen. May be seated. All right, so let's look at the first two verses, and this is the gospel for slaves. This is all about our vocation. The first thing that you can't miss as we start right off the bat, you can't miss who Paul is speaking to. He is addressing slaves. Paul is giving directions here to Christian slaves regarding their behavior, their attitude, the quality of their work, whether they are working for pagan masters or for believing masters. You can see this in verse 1 right there in the text. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants. Other translations have the word slaves there. Now, historians have said that perhaps one-third of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. And throughout his letters, Paul oftentimes took, took, took moments to address Christians who were slaves because there were many Christians who were slaves in the churches. And so Paul is addressing this particular group of people out of pastoral care and awareness of their situation. Paul knew that to be a slave brought very difficult challenges to the Christian life. Therefore, Paul pauses frequently in his letters to speak to Christians who are in this condition of slavery because he really cares for them. So that's the very first thing you can't miss. Paul is speaking to slaves. Then look at what he says also in verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Now, does that statement surprise you? 
Does that statement shock you? Were you expecting Paul to call for the release of all the slaves? Were you expecting Paul to make a Christian emancipation proclamation? Well, he doesn't do that. Instead, he gives instructions to Christian slaves about their behavior and their attitude. What do you make of that? We, we expect the New Testament to, to speak out against the, the evils of slavery. So how do we explain this? I'm going to try for just a few moments here. The very first thing you have to know is that the kind of slavery mentioned in the Bible is not the same kind of slavery that comes to your mind and my mind when we think of slavery. I'm sure that as I've said that word over and over again, you've got some images, right, coming to your mind. Now, some of it was evil, yes. Some of it had to do with, with being in debt, and then once you paid your debt, you were then set free. Some of it had to do with, with being in poverty and volunteering to be someone's slave to escape the life of poverty. So that's the first thing. There were many different kinds of slavery in this culture, in these times. Second, you might want to write this scripture down in 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24. Paul makes it clear that if, if a Christian who is a slave has the opportunity to become free, then he should take that opportunity. Third, in the book of Philemon, Paul works hard to mitigate Slavery. Fourth, Paul's, Paul's instruction throughout his letters about how a Christian slave ought to behave and work is not based in the creation order or in God's moral law. Now, for just a moment to drive that point home, let's look at how Paul treats marriage and family versus how he talks about slavery. Now, this is on the screen, but if you want to go to Ephesians 5, you can. In Ephesians 5, Paul talks about why husbands ought to love their wives sacrificially and why wives ought to respect their husbands. And then he gives his reason for that command. In verse 31 of chapter 5, Paul says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Paul bases his teaching about the marriage relationship in how God created marriage originally and perfectly in the Garden of Eden. In other words, God's created order in Genesis 2, is to be normative for how Christian wives and how Christian husbands relate to one another. Basically, the way that God created marriage is good. It is a good thing. Now, still in Ephesians, in chapter 6, verse 1, Paul talks about family dynamics, and Paul says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, what does Paul base this teaching on? Look at verse 2. Honor your father 
And mother, this is the first commandment with the promise so that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So Paul goes to the fifth commandment and says, this is the reason, kids, and there's some kids in the room today. This is the reason, kids, why you are to obey your parents. Because God has said that it is right to do so in his law. This is how God designed the family to work. So Paul's instruction on marriage and family is based upon God's created order and in God's law, the Ten Commandments. But notice in our text that Paul does not base his teaching about slavery in either of those things. And that is because slavery is a result of a fallen world. The Bible mitigates, constrains, improves, gives boundaries, and defines what type of actions are appropriate within the slave and master relationship. But it does not condone it or sanction it or argue that slavery is somehow the way things ought to be. In Exodus 20 and 21, as God begins to give the civil law, he gives laws on slavery. And all those laws, by and large, are requirements on masters to treat their slaves well. So in other words, even Moses' law is designed to mitigate the state of slavery. So again, Paul doesn't base his teaching about slavery in God's created order or God's law. No, slavery is a result of a fallen world that the Old Testament and the New Testament teaching manages rather than condones. And yet, here in our text, Paul says to Christians who are currently slaves to honor to honor their masters, to regard their masters as worthy of honor. Why? Why? Look at the text, still in verse 1. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. In other words, Paul gives this evangelistic reason for the behavior and the attitude of these dear Christian slaves. Paul tells the Christian slaves that their conduct, that their behavior, that their attitude has implications for God's reputation and God's glory and for the credibility of the gospel. And so Paul expects the Christian slave to so care about their witness to God and to the truth of Christianity that they bear witness with their service, with their behavior, with their attitude, even though they are in a very, very difficult personal condition. Now this, this is mind-bending stuff. This is hard. In Galatians 5, Paul reminds us that Christ has set us free to serve him. And the freedom that, that Christ gives us is what enables us to die to ourselves and to our desires for special treatment and to live for Christ through the power of the Spirit. And so here he says to these dear Christian slaves, whether you have a pagan master, whether you have a believing master, here's what I want you to do. I want you to live and work in such a way that your life brings honor to the name and to the reputation and to the glory and to the gospel of God through the power of the Spirit. Paul basically says, dear slave, 
Adorn the gospel of Jesus with your behavior, with your attitude, with the way that you live. Spread the aroma of Christ with your life. Now, what what do these first two verses have to say to us? We are like 2,000 years removed from this cultural context. So, So what does that mean for you and for me in 2022 here in Roseburg, Oregon? Well, none of us, none of us are slaves, at least not in the way that these people were slaves. Every single person in this room, we are all in positions of privilege compared to these dear brothers and sisters. Yet Paul's teaching still speaks loudly to us. And here's the first thing it says. Based upon Paul's command to the Christian slave to live in such a way that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. We see this principle. Christians, that's you and me, Christians are to fulfill our vocations with a perspective that we are to commend the name of God in the gospel and that we are to defend the name of God in the gospel. When Paul tells these slaves, regard your masters as worthy of all honor for the sake of God and the truth of Christ, he's calling all of us in our vocations to do what we do with an eternal perspective and in such a way that has regard for the name of God and the truth of Christ. Paul Paul is saying, don't let your circumstances, no matter how tough they are, blind you of a kingdom perspective in kingdom responsibilities. And especially since none of us in this room are in the condition of slavery, it is especially important for us in our vocations to honor God in how we live and work. Wouldn't it be a shame that we as Christians would be known by the community around us as not fulfilling the highest standards in our employment and our vocations? Paul says here, do nothing, do nothing in the way that you work that would damage the reputation of God and the gospel of Jesus. So when you go to work, work and work with excellence. Loggers, be a good logger. (laughs) Doctors, nurses, care for people well. Accountants, be good accountants. Teachers, teach well. Students, Be a good student. It matters. Whatever you do, do it well. Show up on time. Serve. Perform. Have integrity. Be faithful. And if Paul can can give this command to slaves, how much more does that apply to you and me? We are to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus in the way that we live and work. The way that we live and work either commends the gospel or it undermines the gospel. Well, the second thing these first two verses say to us is actually found in verse 2. Paul says that Christians should not serve other Christians with less than exemplary service just because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at what the text says. They must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So in other words, if you have a Christian boss at work, work extra really hard to perform for them. 
Don't take advantage of your Christian brother or sister who is your boss at work. If they claim to be a Christian, work really, really hard for them. Christians are typically kind and gracious and helpful people. So what Paul is saying is this. You want your Christian boss to do really well. You want him to succeed so they can invest into the gospel of Jesus. You want to do a good job for them, especially because they are dear to you. They are family. And that is an extremely important message. This week, I read the story of the former chaplain to the U.S. Senate, Richard Halverson, and his interaction with a man who owned a series of car dealerships in the D.C. area. Now, this uh, car dealer businessman wanted to be a witness to Christ with his business. He uh, had this idea to have his salesman hand out tracts and New Testaments to all the clients who came into the shop, but he was famous for being a bad businessman. He did not stand behind his products. So this man came to Halverson and said, isn't this a great idea to give out tracts and New Testaments? And Halverson said, that is a great idea, but you know what a better idea would be? Treat your customers right. Be an upstanding businessman. Stand behind your product. Honor your warranties. Don't sell lemons. Church, one of the greatest barriers to our gospel witness in our community is our lives. Our lives will either commend the truth or undermine it. People will either say, you know, that person, what she believes is immediately credible to me because of the way that they live. Or they will say, you know, I wouldn't want to believe anything that person believes because I know how they live. So may God grant that we would live and approach our vocations in such a way as to adorn the gospel and bear witness to Jesus. Again, God cares about your vocation. Whether you eat or drink, from the mom to the executive, do everything for the glory of God. And there is power in the gospel to affect how you view and approach your work. Now let's look at the next set of verses. This is the gospel for heretics. This is all about our doctrine. God cares about your doctrine. The second group that Paul addresses is in verses 3 through 10, and it's false teachers. This is about the fifth time already in this book that Paul has spoken against false teaching, and here is the deal. You and I are still not off the hook. You may be thinking, I'm not a teacher, so surely I can't be a false teacher. Or I don't preach on Sundays, I'm just a children's ministry teacher or a community group leader, so... I can't, I'm not a false teacher. Well, you you may be disappointed. Look at the next few verses here with me. Paul begins in uh, verse 3 by describing what sound doctrine looks like so that you and I can distinguish between sound doctrine and false teaching. Look at verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. 
So look at how Paul describes sound doctrine. It is according to the words of Jesus, and it is according to the words that Paul and the other apostles had been teaching. It is not some new and secret teaching that no one has ever heard of. It is the same story that Jesus preached, and it's the same truth that the apostles preached. And then notice what Paul says. Sound doctrine leads to what? It leads to godliness. It doesn't just fill you up with knowledge, but sound doctrine should transform your life. It should transform your life so that the truth is lived out in godliness, in holiness, by the power of God's Spirit, in commitment to Christ. History tells us that these false teachers Paul is talking about, at least many of them were claiming that they had received some new revelation from God, which the apostles had not received, a fresh new word. And so Jesus had communicated to them by the Holy Spirit certain truths which were key to the Christian life, and those new truths had not yet been revealed to the apostles. So these guys were coming as the mouthpieces of God to tell the Christian church truths which had never been heard before. And the Apostle Paul says, No, let me tell you about my teaching. My teaching is the old, old story. I have absolutely nothing new to tell you. What I have to tell you is what Jesus had to tell you. What I have to tell you is what all the other apostles had to tell you because we did not make up our teaching. We got it from Jesus. We got it from the word, which is God's revelation of who he is and of his will and of his ways and the way of salvation. That's where we get our teaching from. And so, church, if someone comes and says, hey, I've got something new to tell you. You've never, ever heard it before. This is a special teaching that I alone have received, and it is the key to the Christian life and to unlocking the blessings of life. Here's what you do. You run. You can be certain you're hearing a false teacher. When my family and I lived in Seattle, we were having dinner this one night, and we uh, we heard a knock on the door. So I peeked out through the window, and I saw these two young men, and I thought, Okay, it's either Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. And so I, you know, figured, should I go engage this or just sit down again and have dinner? But I went to open the door. I uh, greeted them. We exchanged some pleasantries. And then they said this. They said, hey, we're just walking around your neighborhood, and we are spreading this new truth we found, that God is our mother. And um, it shocked me. And then I had that inner battle that said something like this. Should I engage in this? <laughs> or should I just say, have a good night, I'm not interested. I already found Jesus. Well, I engaged it. And so we started talking. And uh, what these guys had done is they pointed to a scripture. And they basically had taken one phrase out of the scripture, completely out of context, disregarded where the the text before and after, the the history of redemption, they totally forgot about all that. And they were concocting this brand new truth. And so um, I grabbed the Bible, tried to show them the verses before, the verses after, tried to have a conversation, but it wasn't going anywhere. There was, it got a little heated. It wasn't my finest moment. Uh, But, uh, 
there was there was definitely no humility happening on either party, probably. And I knew that it wasn't going to go anywhere. And so after a while, I said, listen, if you want to have a discussion with some humility and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm totally willing to have that. But it doesn't look like that. So listen, you're not welcome here. This is my neighborhood. You don't live here. I do. These are my neighbors. I know their names. I see them every day. I'm trying to be a witness to them. I'm trying to share the gospel with them. I'm trying to serve them. So all you're doing is spreading false teaching. You're not welcome here. And they said some stuff to me, and they left. But guess what? They never came back. They never came back. So you ever hear that? I've got this new teaching. Run. Run. Paul says, my teaching is not some secret teaching for the Illuminati that only special Christians have heard and can understand. No. Our teaching is is open. The apostles, we've all been preaching the same message. It's the only message we have. The message we received from Jesus. The old, old story. So, sound doctrine, Paul is saying, is according to Jesus' teaching, is according to the apostles' teaching, and it leads to godliness. It doesn't lead to speculation. It doesn't lead to division. It leads to Christ-likeness. Its fruit is a life which is in alignment with the word of God. The next thing Paul does, because he cares for the church, is he, he gives the characteristics of false teachers. You see those things in verse 4. Notice what he says about a person who doesn't teach sound doctrine. He's conceited, understands nothing, but instead has a weird interest in controversial questions and loves to argue about words. Isn't that amazing? Three things, Paul says, are characteristics of false teachers. Pride, ignorance, and an obsession with obscure things. When I was in Bible school, we were having this discussion in class about a very smart man who was teaching things that were not true. And my professor said this, boys, all you need to be a heretic is a little intelligence and a little pride, and you've got the perfect ingredients for heresy. And here, Paul is saying the same thing. False teachers are conceited. They're prideful. They are puffed up. They want to have special standing and status and esteem and authority and control over believers so they can cook up their own teachings. But the reality is that they themselves don't understand Christianity. Even though they profess to be smarter than everybody else, they don't really grasp the basic truths of the gospel of Jesus. And for some reason, they obsess on controversial questions and they get fixated on some tiny little truth off to the side. And they'll teach that truth every time they can. I was preaching a while back and I got off the pulpit and when the service was done, this young man came to say hello and I stuck out my hand to shake his and he stopped about six feet from me and he said this to me. He says, all I want to know is what you believe about the little horn in the book of Daniel. And I just went, my mind was so fried because I was just done, done preaching that I was like, what? Like, excuse me? And he just walked up and left. Just obsessed with just obscure things. And so Paul says that these are some of the characteristics of a false teacher. 
And the Apostle Paul is waving this flag and warning the church, church, be careful with what you believe. Be careful with what you believe. Because you know what? False teachers don't just walk through the door and say, hey, CLF, I'm a false teacher. Nice to meet you. It doesn't happen like that. I read a quote this week that said, every false teacher has also been a sweetheart. So we have to have wisdom. We have to have discernment. We have to be in the word ourselves and be Bereans. God cares about your doctrine. It really, really matters what you believe. Why? What does this kind of teaching result in? Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. This kind of teaching produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. So in other words, one one reason why it's so important that you believe right and true doctrine is because false teaching will always, always lead to personal ungodliness, division, Conflict, arguing, suspicion, strife, and it will not produce godliness. It will not deliver the goods. And how often have you seen this in practice? Where men claim to have seen a truth that nobody else understands, and they destroy Christians, and they break them apart from the church, and they divide congregations. It happens more than you think. Now, What about the motive? What is the motive of these false teachers? And Paul points out one of their key motives in verse 5. Paul tells us that these men believe that godliness is a means of material gain. These these false teachers uh, think that they are going to get rich off of the gospel. They're going to get rich off of Christianity. They're going to gain material wealth through the truth of Jesus and the gospel. So Christianity for them was just a business. Now this could have been written yesterday. If you were to turn on the radio this week or the TV, any day of the week for that matter, four out of five things you would hear or see that claim to be Christians are doing exactly what Paul is speaking about here. How many of you guys know what I mean? This stuff is everywhere. And there's there's a lot of false teaching happening in, in the churches in the English-speaking world. But, but still, one of the, the most common heresies is this false teaching that God wants you and I to be physically healthy and materially wealthy all the time, and that if you're not it's because you don't have enough faith or because you haven't made some commitment to someone's special teaching. This message is very common. And here Paul is addressing it 2,000 years ago. And so he is saying these false teachers, their motivation is a desire for material gain. And Paul wants to make it clear that that is not what Christianity is about. But notice what He says next in verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, Paul says this, Yes, the gospel does in fact bring great gain. But it's not the kind of gain that these false teachers are talking about. 
False teachers who teach the prosperity gospel will often teach it as though it is some radical truth. They'll teach this doctrine as an exercise of greater faith. But if you think about it, we live in a materialistic, consumer-driven culture that values life based on the bottom line. What the health and wealth teachers are teaching isn't radical at all. It is totally conformed to the whims and trends of this world. What's, what's really radical is what the Apostle Paul is teaching. The gospel does indeed bring great gain. But it's not the kind of gain that these false teachers talk about. Now, the, the primary reward of the gospel is that because of Jesus, we get God. But also, one thing that the gospel will produce in us is contentment. Contentment is a reward and a fruit of the gospel. Because of Jesus, we gain contentment. That is what Paul is talking about here. The gospel involves believers who have, by grace, become disciples of Jesus, taking up their cross and following him, dying daily to sin and self, living for Christ, living for one another and holy, trusting in Christ for their daily bread. And this gospel empowers you and me to be content, totally satisfied and happy in Jesus. The English Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs describes Christian contentment like this. Contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Melissa Kruger, who writes for the Gospel Coalition, says this, Biblical contentment is an inward trust in God's sovereignty and goodness that produces the fruit of joy and peace and thanksgiving in the life of the believer, regardless of outward circumstances. And Paul makes clear that the gospel will foster this gain in you, the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Vine's dictionary defines this word like this, satisfaction with what one has. So whatever God puts in your hand, thank God. Enjoy it, appreciate it, and thank God. And then if if God should provide you something else, well then enjoy it, appreciate it, and thank God. And if he doesn't, well thank God. Church, our Culture may be whispering a lot of things in our ears, but this is one thing they're not whispering. Be content. Everything around you is screaming, do not be content, or you cannot be content until you have the next new shiny thing. But Paul is saying that when the gospel takes a hold of you, you are able to believe in the kind and tender loving kindness and mercy of God. And only then... Will you be able to rest in his provision like you've never rested before? No matter how much or how little you have, because you know that actually it all belongs to God and you are just a steward. That is the power of the gospel at work in you. Then finally, in verses 7 through 10, Paul calls us to guard our hearts against the harmful and subtle love of money. 
Paul says, we brought nothing into this world. We cannot take anything out of it either. I don't know about you, but I've never seen a U-Haul attached to a casket. Paul simply says, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. And here's the deal, church. No Christian is immune from the love of money. You can be poverty-stricken and living in the slums of New Delhi, India, and struggle with the love of money. When you are poverty-stricken, your temptation is to want something that you don't have and to think that what you don't have will give you the satisfaction you're looking for. We have a different struggle. We have so much that we are both inclined to forget the one who has given us what we have And we are inclined to enjoy the things we have received from his gracious hand more than we enjoy him. We are, we are tempted to view him as a means to get what we really want, which are things which we think will give us satisfaction and fulfillment. In other words, instead of loving God and using and stewarding the things he graciously gives us, we love the things that God gives us and we use God and we use people. This is the challenge of affluence. And because we are still living in the wealthiest culture in the history of the world, we must be on guard against the harmful and subtle love of money. And you have to notice that Paul does not say that money is the root of all evil. No, this is not a pro-Marxist speech here. This is not a rant against capitalism. God has... uh, Gifted some of you to make a lot of money for the kingdom. That is a gift of God. The problem is not money. Paul says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. So again, money is not the issue. Stuff is not the issue. You know what the problem is? It's our heart. When your desires are centered upon stuff and material things, when, when that is where your satisfaction and your delight and your security comes from, then you're in trouble because God wants us to depend on him. He wants you and I to love him and use the gifts he gives us, not use him and love the gifts he gives us. And this is only possible by the power of the gospel that transforms the heart. Look at the last phrase in verse 10. This is an unbelievable, sobering warning. It is through this craving for material gain that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. There are many examples of this very thing all over the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira, Simon, who wanted to buy the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit so that he could make money. Judas, who sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, or the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and asked him how to have eternal life, and he went away sorrowing when Jesus told him to sell everything he had and follow him, because he had many things. And his contentment, his fulfillment, his satisfaction was in those things. We can think of him wandering away from the faith. There he was standing in front of Jesus and he left him because he chose to serve stuff rather than God. This is why Jesus is so concerned that we 
would simply use and steward the material blessings that God gives us, not worship them, not love them, not find their ultimate delight in them, not find our fulfillment or security in them. God wants you and me to love him and love people and use money and use things. And again, this is only possible by the power of the gospel. Why? Because generosity is at the heart of the gospel. The first verse we all memorize, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he kept his only son. Is that what it says? No, he so graciously gave us Jesus. 2 Corinthians 8. 7 and 9, you can look at that later. But in those verses, Paul challenges us to excel in giving. Why? Because of the example of Christ. So church, listen, what you believe matters. What you believe really matters. It will either lead you to death or it will lead you to Christ. God cares about your doctrine. So may God help us. We need God's help to be a discerning people, a people that are transformed by truth, a people marked by generosity with our time, with our gifts, with our money, with our service, and a people that are marked by contentment. And we consider it a blessing to be generous with the things God gives us. May we work with excellence. May we steward God's resources well. And may God help us to trust him and be satisfied in him alone. Let's pray that God, by his spirit, would help us to love Christ, love his kingdom, seek him first, and trust him to add the other things. Let's pray. <clears throat> well, Father, I um, I won't speak for anybody else, but I know that I need your help. Help me, God, help us. Tomorrow, Monday, or you know, if we're not working Tuesday, help us to remember that our vocation matters. Help us to approach our work in a way that brings you great glory and honor. I pray that our work ethic would commend the gospel of God, not undermine it. Help us too, Lord, to be a people of truth. There is um, so many lies being spread in this day and age. Help us to be a people that are uh, people of the book, people of truth. And may the truth of Jesus, the old, old story, may it transform us, God. May it change us. Help us to be a content people because of the gospel. Help us to steward your resources well, God. Help us to be a generous people. Help us to do all of these things, God. For your glory. For the good of other people. For the gospel to spread. We need your help, Lord, to do this. And if there's anybody in this room who may not know you, Christ, draw them to yourself. Help them to see your beauty. May they trust you today. In Jesus' name.
Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.